Hey guys, we wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about our recent partnership with the Amazing Bones Coffee Company. Let's face it, you're probably sick and tired of drinking that old plain Jane coffee brand every morning. Well, fret not, dear listener. Bones Coffee is here to kick your taste buds into high gear. Bones Coffee has a wide variety of flavors to choose from, including maple bacon, peaches and spring, island grog, and my personal favorite, chocolate raspberry. Once you become hooked on the coffee, you'll be excited to learn that they have plenty of merch options to choose from as well. T-shirts, mugs, tote bags, the list goes on. You can buy their coffee in Holbein, Ground, and even Evil Single Serve options. Guys, we wouldn't lie to you. This coffee is great, and we know that you're going to love it too, which is why we have partnered up with Bones Coffee, and now our listeners have an exclusive discount code. Make sure to use the code MUSICSPEAKS at checkout for 10% off your order. That's right, James. Go to BonesCoffee.com to kickstart your new coffee addiction and use the code MUSICSPEAKS for 10% off today. Like many of you, we battle depression during life's ups and downs. Music has always been the one thing that we could rely on to get us through the tough times that we all face. Follow us on our journey as we discuss the healing power of music, interview bands, break down genres, review band biographies, and more. This is the When Words Fail Music Speaks Podcast with Blake Mosley and James Cox. And now, the When Words Fail Music Speaks interview. Now, and he says that, uh, that, that he hard, they, they, they hardly get any rain up there. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we've had a water shortage probably for a couple of years. There's yeah. even cities nearby where I live that literally have no water right now. And so they're desperate. But this is life in the desert, buddy. You know, it's how it is. Yeah. Got to make do. Yeah, because he says uh, it rains like twice a year there. And I'm like, holy crap, I wish we would see your hour rain because we get rain here too much, you know. Okay. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put it in a truck, bring it to us. We'll take it. <laughs> go cook because I live in uh, in uh, where, where the hell are I? I live in South Carolina, and we get way okay. Too much, we get too much rain and we get too much uh, cold here. It's it's cold right now. So yeah, so we well, take I'm sure over. there's times every time of the year we'll swap you and we'll, we'll just house swap Amen. or something. Yes, you know? Yes. Well, we'll <laughs> we'll send that all our rain and all the cold front your way, sir. So it's all right. It's all right. So Roger that music, 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 uh, talk. So what is your favorite genre of music and why? Favorite genre. Uh, I, you know, I don't really have a genre, although I would probably say what used to be called, uh, alternative or independent rock music. And what I mean by that is that that kind of term got morphed and homogenized and pasteurized and, turned into something that I don't recognize that much anymore. But for the right. most part, I'm kind of one of those people who had my heyday in music in the 80s and probably grew up with uh, REM, uh, Midnight Oil from back in Australia where I'm from, The yeah. Church, uh, bands like that, that kind of eclectic uh, alternative rock music that wasn't punk but wasn't hard rock but wasn't quiet either. I mean, it was, uh, you know deep and, and meaningful i like that sort of stuff i i i completely understand what you're talking about alternative because i was in high school in 90 90 uh, well i went to um high school in 94 and in 99 and the term back then was alternative 
Wait, it was considered grunge when I listened to, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Tom Garnon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that, well, I, because mm, when you say alternative to um, other other persons, they, they think like everything, you know, instead of just one, yeah. one classified genre. So I listen to everything well, there, now, but the there's, a, there's a history behind that term alternative because it really came out of the whole concept of the college radio scene in the 80s because back in those days, there was this big problem that most artists had to get record label deals and secure a lot of money to be able to record an album and get it released. And there was this one little alternative path that they could go on, and that was college radio. And I guess that became the definition of alternative music because it wasn't mainstream. It wasn't the big record labels, the you know Capital, EMI, Sony, uh, Warners. It was not those guys. It was in completely almost underground level war, somewhat punk rock uh, movement. And that's kind of where I came out of, right. uh, both musically in terms of what I was playing with bands and so on, but also uh, when I entered the world of recording studios, that was my market. That was for the guys that I recorded. So grunge was kind of like a commercialization of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird because I actually lived in Seattle in 1989, 90, right. somewhere around there. Not for very long. I was oh, only okay. there for about nine months. And I know this was all going on around me, but no one up there at the time even recognized there was a movement. It was just, this is what people did on the weekend and these are the clubs they went to and this is what they played. And, you know, the weather was horrible. It was always raining. And so you had this natural kind of affinity to be really aggressive and just, you know, throw all of your anger out there on the stage, which is how you got your Nirvanas and your Sound Gardens and, and Mud Honeys and so on. Mud Honey, yeah. But, I, mean, I mean, I haven't heard of Mud Honey in years, so I don't know what happened to those guys. But, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. another one of the sub-pop acts, hey, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, back in Seattle, um, there's one band that totally demolished a genre, I thought, I think, back in the day. Uh, hair bands... I kind of took the back seat to to, to Nirvana. I yeah. mean, Nirvana just yeah. took them all out. You know, I mean, Air Supply is was upset. I mean, he was furious that Nirvana came came along and and, and took their win from him. But uh, yeah, Nirvana meant a lot to me. And uh, you know, cause I was I, cause I grew up with like like stuff with like Green Day, Metallica, Green Day, all these punk pop bands. You know, um, Blink One Eighty Two, all these bands. You know, and uh, yeah, and for people who I think that you that you like you're like me. You like all kinds of music now. I mean, there's no set genre that you like. Okay, I you know, I listen to one band you know all the time. Uh, yeah, well, that, that a lot of that comes from the fact I had uh, at a very young age I was classically trained as a violinist. So, yeah. you you learn uh, to not like what you're doing because <laughs> <laughs> right. it's it's horrible. I mean, you're you're dealing in this highly constructed, disciplined, systemic. Uh, world of orchestras where you can't play anything that isn't written on the sheet of music in front of you and the conductor is controlling you and it's almost like uh, how well you play is irrelevant because you're one of 100 people in an orchestra and it's just important that you bow in the right direction rather than you sound good and uh, I always found that to be very difficult to deal with so when I when I got into my high school years and I left the world of uh, classical music uh, I happened to be in a high school that didn't have an orchestra and uh, I ended up 
picking up guitar and learning classical guitar. So then that turned into rock guitar, which turned into Britpop jangly kind of guitar, which is what I play. And uh, that landed me in Hollywood and in bands and that whole scene. Yeah, so. Yeah. so let's talk about it for a minute. So you essentially grew up on Sunset, Sunset uh, Boulevard where all the, all the major acts like like Motley Crue and Def Leppard and all of them started out, right? Yeah, I was at the tail end of that. Tail, so, okay, so um, okay. yeah. So uh, my first bands that I was in was in Australia. So back then you're living in a big country with few people and there wasn't as much need for commercialization of music. It was more just about artistic expression. And so the bands that I were in were somewhat eclectic and avant-garde, um, but but hard rock. Uh, think kind of the Smiths meet a bit of metal, Ooh, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Right, and so the re- but the rest of the country at the time was coming out of the post ACDC era uh, after Bon Scott was you know died. It was kind of it it resurfaced, but hard rock had sort of been a product of the seventies, and everybody wanted to do something different. It was either going to be post-punk or it was going to be key keyboard synth music uh and in our particular case it was kind of like something entirely different that we wanted to do so i was in bands back then that did some really great things and then one day i found myself in hawaii uh on vacation and i met a girl and we ended up getting married and she was from los angeles so i ended up moving to california and when i did that uh, i got stuck in this sort of immigration system void uh, which was that I was allowed to stay uh, in the country but I had to wait for the government to process my immigration status so I could work and that was going to take six months maybe even longer right so I was sort of wandering around you know Ventura Boulevard uh, and Hollywood during the day with literally nothing to do because I couldn't work and all I did was I just kept walking into guitar centers and amp stores and all this stuff and hanging out in those stores because I could pick up a guitar and play it. And they used to have these, uh, back in the day, they used to have these sort of notice boards in the stores with bands, you know, like musicians wanted, you know, guitarists wanted, bass player wanted, whatever. Yeah. And I responded to a couple of those and that's how I ended up forming a band in, in LA. And uh, eventually, you know, I got, some money and I bought a guitar and an amp and it was all, you know, bootstrapped yeah. uh, stuff. <laughs> but I was so lucky. The guy that I formed the band with was in, uh, from Ireland and he had a very unusual voice, but more importantly, had a much more consistent view of music and art that I had because when you'd, you'd read these boards back then and you'd see, oh, you know, guitarists wanted must sound like so-and-so from Motley Crue yeah. or from, yeah. you know, it, it was like, are we really going to go there? Are we really just going to regurgitate the last 10 years of hair yeah. bands up and down the strip? Uh, and even the clubs were getting tired of it. And so, right. you know, we wanted to do something completely off the wall and we did, and we ended up forming a band and it, it, it was so unusual and different that we got a lot of gigs and we got some exposure and, and it was great. It was a really good time to be uh, in Hollywood in 1990. Um, 
Yeah. You know, bands around us that were emerging were bands like Tool. Um, yeah. I, I think they were a big, a big influence on what we were doing. Um, but there was, a, I think, no doubt was just starting out around then. Um, Weezer had just emerged. Uh, it, it was that sort of a scene. And uh, it was great. It was really enjoyable because you'd end up playing in clubs that, you know, you'd play with bands that were really interesting and good. And the next thing you know, they became signed and big. And it's like, oh, yes, to play with those guys. You know, you know we shared a stage with them. It's like, great. And then one day, you know, we started getting the calls from the labels. Um, and then we were stuck in that situation where we were doing lunches with Capitol Records or Geffen people or whatever. And, and it was like, this isn't real. It was a real shock to the system, but we just wanted to play music. You know, that was our whole thing. Yeah. Oh, so was that band called Shadow Society? Because I know yeah. you... Okay. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, yeah, because uh, in in your in your bio that you sent me, uh, you got an award for the best unsigned band, and that's why yeah. a lot of the labels came to you and took you out to eat, and and I guess like like you were like feeling, oh my god, this is cloud nine, and we can't get any any higher than this, right? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The funny thing was, you know, of the people you meet, there's different tiers that were happening. Now this is this is back in the days when they would routinely. Uh, give a band a couple of hundred thousand dollars as right. a either a they give them a small amount as a development deal so they could go and try and record some stuff, do demos and whatever, and then they give them a bigger amount to record the album. Right. But they wouldn't give it to the band; they give it to the producer. So you needed oh. a somebody who could interact as your representative between your art and the rec and the record label because the bands and the record labels often didn't even get along. Um, they saw themselves as not sharing the same mission, but the producer got, it was the gap. He filled the gap. He or she filled the gap. And so we were attracted to producers first before labels. So we had tried our best to actually encourage to find good producers as opposed to record labels and let the producer do all the label stuff. And we got lucky. We had a couple of guys who uh, took some interest in us, but one guy who was kind of really important to me was a guy by the name of Jeff Lorenzen. Mm. And Jeff had just finished doing, um, there was a song, I think in the eighties, late eighties called, uh, from a band called fine young cannibals. Yes. Uh, yes. it was called, she drives me crazy. She dri yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and Jeff, I, yeah, Jeff and produced it, that. Yeah. And then I think uh, you before the, uh, covered that song, correct? Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think so. Nice. Yeah, and then Jeff eventually fell into the the camp with the guys from Tears for Fears, mm -hmm. and so he was uh, the right guy for us. He was perfectly suited for us, and we got along. Jeff and I became good friends. I'd have him over to the house all the time, and we were progressing in a really good way towards uh, becoming, you know, something he was going to record. And and all of a sudden, he would he and other producers would take us to all the recording studios, the big ones around Hollywood and the, in North Hollywood and the Valley in Burbank. And we would try out and demo certain things with these guys because they get some free studio time, you know, at odd hours, like in the middle of the night. And so we'd rock up and record there and it was fun. And, and I remember um, Jeff and I got on really, really well in the recording studio because I, in order to fund my 
music, I became a software developer when I was in my teenage years. And I, I used that as my, as my business. Okay. That was what made me money. That was going to pay the rent. So I didn't have to rely so much on the music, um, which is a double-edged sword. Uh, but because I was a technical guy, Jeff kept leaning on me for information about networking and computers and things like that. And, and as a result of that, he kind of would say to me all the time that, you know, look, I'll teach you the art of recording on these big SSL consoles and, and so on. If you teach me networking and software and technology, this is yeah. at a time when recording it's leaving the analog world, the tape based world and moving into digital. Right. Um, and so he wanted to know all about digital technology and I knew it. So we made a, a made a deal and we were doing that. And then one day in the midst of all of this recording and labels and meetings and, and photo shoots and all that stuff that we were doing, our bass player who was a girl and she was part of a really critical uh, part of our band. We had this three part harmony between myself, our lead singer and her. And without her, uh, we didn't have it. It was all about the harmonies. And uh, when she quit, because it just got too much for her, um, the band just, just just fragmented and broke apart. Mm. Myself and the drummer tried to keep it alive. We brought in new bass players, but of course they couldn't sing like she could. Uh, and eventually, pe you know, people just lost faith and the band collapsed. But oh. I remember during the whole time, I still kept this relationship with um, in the studios. And I, I was just, you know, kind of Jeff was over at my place one night. I was uh, teaching him about networks or something. And he had said to me, well, you know, I know your band's no longer together. Do you want to still work with me in the studio? And I said, I said, absolutely. Huh. But, you know, I can't afford to pay you. Right. you know, he goes, no, no, no. I'll swap you an hour for an hour. You train me in networking and technology and all this, and I'll give you that same number of hours on the SSL, learning mic techniques, compressors, the whole bit. And I said, hell yeah. Yeah, it was a nice trade, right? Yeah. Hour for so hour. I ended up, yeah, I ended up taking a bit of money out of, you know, the, the wages I was earning as a software developer and building a, a studio in my home. And Jeff would come over and help me with that. And then I'd go into the bigger studios and he'd teach me there. And the next thing you know, I was doing the demo recordings in my home studio for all these bands in the West Valley where we were living. And, and then all of a sudden the West Valley started to become a thing and everybody wanted to come over and, and hang with me. And we had, we had amazing people that at the time, you wouldn't even know who they were, but they just sort of float through and do a demo with you or just play on this thing or help a band out. I had like the drummer from Rage Against the Machine was playing in my studio. Oh, and, no. and the next thing you know, I, had, I, I was doing drum programming for uh, Beck. I did some of the, some of the early stuff on that. And then, and then lots of bands that never went anywhere, but I met people who were part of that scene who then became record label executives. And the next thing you know, because these relationships that were very organic, very community-based, meant that I was getting phone calls to be engineering in big studios on my own without Jeff in there. And I'm like, oh, no, oh, this, is, this, no. Is, this is above my pay grade, dude. I mean, you know, come on. Right. But 
I didn't realize that my technical knowledge and my understanding of music and being trained by somebody of that level, that that was very, very, very valuable. Cause I'd go into these big studios and the guys who were in there before me were, they were winging it and they were not good at what they did. And I'd come in and in a couple of hours, I'd just get the mics just exactly right on the drum kit and get the tape loaded properly and center the board properly and deal with, you know, the whole bit. And, um, and then that, that was great. I, I did a lot of underground albums uh, recording uh, either pre-production or full production. Uh, I did work on a band called Sensefield uh, that was, I'm really proud of. I mean, I, that was their building album. Uh, I worked with them. And then that led me to, uh, I was in a studio in Hollywood called Grand Master Recorders. And it was this disgustingly horrible place. It smelled of pee. I mean, it was just, oh, okay. but it, but it had this, it had this old 1970s Neve recording console. And if you know anything about studios, Neve's kind of the luminary, everybody wants to record in a studio with a Neve. Um, and I happened to learn it. I, I right. was in there all on my own and just being given the whole studio for days. And it's like, work it out, Miles, we'll send you artists. And I'm like, okay. And then the guy who owned the place, <laughs> He was this guy called Alan. He was this old, everyone thought, you know, this guy can't afford to run the studio based on what the bands were playing because it was really cheap. I mean, it was like 500 bucks a day studio. It wasn't an expensive place. And um, everyone thought Alan was funding his life from some other form that we weren't sure. And as it happened, yeah, he ended up spending time in the, in the prison because he was dealing cocaine or something out of the office upstairs in the studio. Um, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I didn't care. I just wanted to play on the Neve. Right. But Alan came down to see me between his various stints. <laughs> um, and he said, look, do you want to record? i got this band coming in from out of state. Do you want to record them next week? And I said, yeah, hell yeah, no problem. You know, put me put me down. I was just, you know, house engineer. Um, and this is at the time Tool had just finished doing, I think they, I can't remember the name of the album. They did an album in Grandmaster with Sylvia Massey. Um, a lot of really great albums were done in Grandmaster. And uh, I think that was, I think they'd just done that album there. And so I was thinking, oh, this will be fun. Maybe it'll be something like that, you know. Anyway, I lined up to do this gig and three days before I'm supposed to do it, I get a phone call from Australia. My mother had been in a car accident and I had to go down there immediately to take care of her. Right. So I'm like, ah, oh, okay. So I did and I called Alan up and I said, look, I can't do this session. You got me on, uh, I've got to go to Australia. And he goes, all right, you, you take care of that. I'll find somebody else. Um, Anyway, I find out, I go to Australia. I ended up, a whole, everything went horribly wrong. I got divorced. My wife didn't oh, move to Australia with me because I had to be there to look after my mom, but she didn't, it, it, was, it wasn't the whole gig. And of course, yeah. my entire career in recording was like severed at that point because even though I ended up shipping all of my gear from my home studio in California back to Australia and built a studio there, I didn't have the abundance of talent that I was used to dealing with in Hollywood. Um, in Hollywood, there was at any moment in time, there were 10,000 out of work musicians who were all 
studio ready session musicians, you know, some of the best of the best. And I was so used to dealing with these guys. And then I found myself in my old hometown building a studio and trying to get talent there. And it was, it was hard. There were some good people. There's some great talented musicians, but it was, you know, really, really, really hard to make it work. But anyway, we ended up getting divorced. I ended up nearly getting killed in a car accident in the outback. I got stuck down there with my mother dealing with her. I ended up getting remarried um, and I was there for four years. And then when I came back to California after she had passed away and uh, I went back to California thinking I could re restart this, the record labels, the budgets had gone, Napster had come, tape was no longer a thing. They didn't want to record on any of these old vintage consoles, which I'd been trained on. It was all about, you know, digital recording pro tools. Right. Yeah. And everybody uses and it, pro tools now. Everybody, you know, so everybody. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I use, don't get me wrong. I use pro, pro tools, tools myself, good, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but um, it was just a different world. Right. And the abundance of, alternative acts uh, went away because no one had any money and the labels just shut down. And, you know, if there were acts that were already, they had some momentum like Blink-182 and bands like that, mm. they were able to continue into that sort of K-rock radio style that would emerged in Southern California. But new players on the, on the scene were few and far between. And so... I just ended up going back to writing software and for 20 years, that's what I did. I went back into the software world and it treated me well. I mean, don't get me wrong. I made a lot of money in it, but. But, that wasn't, <laughs> but, but you didn't, but you weren't happy there, you know, right? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, this is the hard part for a musician is you kind of cursed with this sense of creativity and you know, your people, right? You know who you yeah. enjoy being around, you know, how studios work, you know, record people, you know how to deal with it all and it becomes your family. And all of a sudden that's no longer a viable thing. It's hard to take, but yeah. I, I, you know, 20 years later, I, uh, I had this car accident in Australia in the mid nineties. And so I was still carrying around a, an injury to my shoulder and I needed to get it fixed, but I didn't have medical insurance in the States to be able to afford to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I got quotes of $160,000 to get my shoulder fixed and, and I kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And one day I woke up and I was in this excruciating pain and my wife's like, what's wrong? And I said, my shoulder is like really, really bad. Well, we've been doing these with, I'd moved from LA to Arizona cause it was cheaper. Um, and we were living in, in Arizona. Right. And so you're a border state with Mexico. Right. And so whenever we wanted to go and do something, we'd go down into Mexico because, you know, you could go hang in the Sea of Cortez at some beautiful little town by the ocean and, you know, drink tequila and have a good time. So we'd do that. And I got to know Mexico pretty well. And um, eventually that expanded into going to Mexico City and learning about the history and climbing the pyramids and all that stuff. And it was, it was wonderful, wonderful experience. But um, I had the shoulder. And I knew that the medical care in Mexico was cheaper. So I met a few people in my forays down there and I sort of leaned on a couple of people who knew the medical field. One guy was a doctor and I got recommended to go to Guadalajara and see a surgeon to get checked out for what problem with my shoulder. 
And uh, as it happened, I did, and he found a tumor in my shoulder. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Thankfully, it's benign. Oh, so good. I'm, I'm good. You know, yeah. good. Yeah. But he's looking at me going, yeah, I've got to cut you open right now and get rid of this sucker right now. We get, we, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> Here I am in a foreign country. I don't speak you don't, Spanish. You don't I don't, nothing. you know. Yeah, yeah. All you got is like these images of Mexican cartels beheading people, <laughs> and you know the danger. And you think, oh, what third world country medicine's going to be great? Exactly. But it, I could afford it, you know. So I said to the, I said, I'll put my faith and trust in you, Doc. Cut me open, fix this problem, patch me up, and he did. And it was the best medical experience I've ever had in my life. Nice. It was. I, I'm just like. This is not the Mexico I was told about, right? This is like, this is like being in Spain, being in Madrid. This is great. So, while I'm recuperating, the reason why this is an interesting connection, yeah. it's like a circle. Yeah, um, I'm sitting in this Airbnb for six weeks because I can't leave the town because what if there's a problem? I got to see the doctor, so I got to wait for the thing to stabilize. So my wife and I are in this. Um, Airbnb for six weeks in Guadalajara. Well, you know, what do you do? I got nothing to do. So I, I took a little set-top media player with me and I plugged it into the TV set, which had internet, so I could watch YouTube videos. So I'm just, you know, all day long, I'm watching YouTube videos and I keep watching videos about recording studios because this is what I want to do, but, you know, I, I can't do it. Right. And I ended up stumbling upon a video uh on a channel called produce like a pro was warren hewitt's channel and it was about this interview uh, he was doing with a guy and i can't remember his name to be honest but he had been the producer on the foo fighters color and shape album the, the big one that's, yes that's what i was asking totally about because i find that very uh yeah, it's, it's kind of awkward because i mean here you are you are going to get the to uh, produce the this color and shape, but yeah, you well, not produce it, but I would have been an engineer right, on it. Yeah, right, yeah, um, yeah, but uh, that that was the album with uh, my hero and uh, Everlong, correct? Everlong, Everlong, yeah, yeah, yeah you're that, right. That, that, yeah, that was the biggest album for them still to this day. I think you know. I think so too, yeah. and and the weird thing was that it was recorded in Grandmaster, and it was the band that I was scheduled to engineer on, where I couldn't because I had to go back to Australia. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, when you you can imagine, I mean, my wife keeps reminding me of the expression <laughs> on my face when I heard this, because yeah. I here I am in Guadalajara watching this thing, and I just went white. I'm yeah. like, yeah, are like you kidding me? Right. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. To be, I, I mean, just to be a part of that would be amazing. But yeah, but but uh, but me, it's the family is always first, you know, you know. But, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. But um, yeah. Now you said you were gonna do the audio for one of the two records, correct? No, no. Oh, I wish I was. Okay. Um, okay. it's funny because now I'm living in Arizona part of the time. Um. Uh, Maynard is living up in Jerome, not about an hour and a half drive north of us. Oh, and uh, yeah. but he's more interested in building a winery up there. Than yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he's a busy guy, and I'd love to work with him if I had the chance, but uh, yeah, that's yeah, not happening at yeah, the moment. Yeah, because the guy has like what, like three, four bands right now. He's got a, he's yeah. making his own wine, and he's doing great, great things with his life. Um, he is. He is. My my only. Uh, fault with him is he waits forever to do another tool record you know i mean i mean <laughs> yeah. being a being a tool fan i mean we waited like 13 years for 
uh, Fear and Doctor Man. That that record's great. You know, so he yeah, does great, he does great work, but I they, I think he needs to like do one album um, every like two or three years. You know, just keep us entertained. <laughs> yeah, it's a, know, it's a certainly a quality, um, not quantity gig yeah, for these right, guys. But which is great, you know, which is great. I would rather have quality than quantity. You know, that's because I had to learn that yeah. that hard way. But um, okay, so let's go back to when Jabrisa said that it was too much for her. Did she mm-hmm. tell you why everything was going too much for her? Like, like, like what was she like? Um. She didn't like. She didn't want to allow a lot of eyes on her, you know, on, on like giving her notoriety or something. Or like, was she just not having? Well, she. Time? I mean, she shared with all of us the same kind of. I mean, like shyness, I guess, or or lack of um, conviction as musicians, which in some ways, if you play that to your advantage, can create great art. But in the case where you're expected to be up there on stage, I mean, we look. We we played. Uh, we used to be a house band in a club in Sunset called The Central. And The Central got bought and turned into the Viper Room. Johnny Depp bought it. Okay, okay, yeah. And and we used to be the house band there. So you can imagine that when you're on stage in these sort of venues, it's a little intimidating. And and I can, I can, I understand that, I get that. But, you know, you rise, you rise past that and you do your best work. I mean, that's what you do. You you shut your eyes, and if you have to shoe gaze, you do what you have to do, but you do your best work. Yeah. And I thought that she did remarkably well. She was incredibly talented. Um, but there was always... We'd sit in rehearsals or just, you know, hang around after rehearsals or whatever, and the whole band would just talk. And it was, it was interesting listening to her because she was more of a fan of music than she was a participant in it. Got it. And, and I, I realised that she didn't have to assume that position, you know? She could tell you everything about the Bengals or everything about, you know, what's going on with this album or this band or what's happening in music. She was like, almost like a a, a reporter of music. But I was looking at going, you're not a reporter of music, you're making the news, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right? So it's a different place to be. And in the same way that I look at, engineers on one side of the glass in a recording studio and our job to be able to manage the consoles and record the studio. I, I also realized that, you know, you do that to the best of your ability, but the artist on the other side has to be the artist and they have to do the art to the best of their ability. And, and I was always, I mean, I was probably annoying the rest of the band a lot, but I was always pushing for us to break out of what we had just done and to do something entirely new, a bit harder core, a bit more experimental, a bit more um, avant-garde, a bit more pro- you know, progressive, um, for lack of a better term. And, and I was always getting the fear from the rest of the band that they just wanted to do what worked before and just do another one like that. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, that's not good. We're not going to last very long if we do that. No. We, we need to. We need to explore our own art and we need to do whatever the hell we want to do and forget about what gets the applause at the show or what the record labels want. They're they're irrelevant. They're spectators. We're making the action. They're watching it and we need to assume the role of making it. And I I think that maybe I pushed too hard and maybe scared her off a bit. I don't know if it was just me, but maybe it was everything going on around me. 
but I just always recognize that, that, you know, art has to drive forward. It has to be the engine right. pulling the train. Um, and I just got a lot of pushback. That, that was, I'll say this too, that that was something culturally different. In Australia, we were not surrounded by big money and record labels. Right. Bands grew up in the pubs playing. That's where ACDC came from. That's where, you know, Midnight Oil came from. That's where I was playing. And we didn't have anybody to answer to other than ourselves. And it wasn't until we had people to answer to because we had some financial commitment or whatever that everything kind of goes to shit. Um, prior to that, if you can stand up and fight against that, you will have a career. You'll have longevity. Yeah. Um, I've, I've learned that more now looking back than I did at the time. But it's, it's so true. Art has to be done for the sake of art because without it, we as a species are doomed. And it's not a... And, and my biggest peeve right now is that we've turned into a society of cut and paste artists and we're not, you know, I, I spent too much of my life dealing with computers and robotics and, and anti-human behavior. And I want to get back to humanity. That's why I chose there and then in Guadalajara, when I discovered what I'd missed or, you know, the regret I was going to go through, I said to my wife, I'm building the biggest recording studio in Latin America because I can afford to do it in Mexico. And we did, and we bought an acre of land in San Miguel de Allende, and I'm building one of the largest recording studios they've ever seen down there right now. And as it happened, I bought myself a Neve. I got nice. a console like I learned. Yeah. So <laughs> I ended up shipping it down there and we're in the process of building. And, and, that, and that's been wonderful because all of a sudden, the people who still are around that were from the era that I was like, I would guess I was at the tail end of the era, but the people before me, the guys in the seventies, the guys in the eighties who are still out there pitching, um, they've all come to my rescue and volunteered to help me out uh, and work in my studio. And I just hope that I get it done fast enough that the, you know, that I can, but I mean, uh, an example, I met a guy, uh, funny funny story his name is bruce brown he's an australian guy from sydney happened to leave australia in the late 90s so a bit after i did but his claim to fame was he built this recording studio in sydney in the 1970s called albert studios and he worked for a mob called albert records alberts were the guys who signed the acdc they were the big guys right. they were the biggest recording studio and the biggest recording production company in australia in the 70s and the 80s, all the way through to the mid 90s. Bruce built the studio and Bruce engineered and produced most of the albums that came out of that studio. He did not do the ACDC albums because they were done by family members of all things, but really? he... I, okay, okay I, yeah, okay. They come like, Albert, they, Albert family members. Okay, yeah, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, so what ended up happening was Bruce and I became really good friends because we'd hang out in San Miguel and I took him to my property and I told him what I was trying to build and, and he's 80 years old now, right? So he's not in any way back in his youth. And, but I said, Bruce, I want you to work with me and help me build this studio. You built epic studios that gave us some of the greatest hits that ever came out of our country. Right. Why can't we do this here? But 
you know, when you're 80, it's a bit hard to Get accept around, that. Right, yeah. Right. But he did something really kind for me. He said, look, I, I'm going to go. He said, I'm going back to Sydney. I'm going to live the last of my years back there. But I've got some stuff from the old studio that I'm going to give you. Nice. And he, he did. And what he gave me was um, something that I'll probably cherish. There's a microphone known in the studio world as probably one of the world's epic best microphones ever made. It's from a company, uh, I believe they're German, called Neumann. And it's called a U47. And a U47 is one of these mics that anybody from Frank Sinatra to Barbara Streisand would have, mm. it's a vocalist mic, yeah. would have sung into. And Bruce gave me the U47 that came from Albert Studios and he said, I'm going to give you this, but I'm going to give you a photograph. And it's a photograph of Bon Scott before he died oh. singing into my microphone. That's, so I have the microphone that was used on every ACDC album up till Highway to Hell. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that not alone, not just that, but used on pretty much every bit of music that was coming out of Australia from Air Supply to Midnight Oil to, mm. you know, bands like that. Um, and it's those sorts of connections now that I realize are historical and important. So when we designed the studio that we're building in Mexico, we designed it to be an exact replica of Air Studios Montserrat which was a studio George Martin, who was used to be the producer of the Beatles built in uh, 1978. And it was the studio in the Caribbean where the police did their last two albums, where the Rolling Stones reformed and did their albums, where Elton John reformed and did his work. And the list of people, Dire Straits did their Brothers in Arms album there. They did Money for Nothing there. They did I mean, Eurythmics did work there. Everybody through the 80s probably went to that studio and camped out there and lived with George Martin and the family and the, and the guys and produced their work, some of their best work in that studio. And I managed to befriend one of the guys who still lives on the island of Montserrat and was the manager of that studio all through that time. And he has provided me with everything from the engineering drawings of the studio to uh, footage and photography of that place. And we're building an exact replica of Air Studios Montserrat on my property in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I have reached out and contracted with the guys who originally built Air Studios for George Martin in the 80s and hired them to come to Mexico and do the final fit and finish on my studio for me. So we're going to have, have the original musicians that built that studio where those epic recordings were made come and build another one in Mexico and now the baton is passed to me and it's my job to keep everything going. So, um, yeah, it's an adventure, but I have to do it because I'm the guy who missed out on the Foo Fighters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so do you have that microphone behind a, like a bulletproof glass pane? I mean, <laughs> because that, 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 man, that sounds like so rare, like nobody... Could ever touch it, you know? It is, it um, is. In fact, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll send you some photographs, both of yeah. the microphone and Bon Scott singing into it so you can see it. But mm. um, yeah, history is made in recording studios and often you don't realize at the time, you know, what's going on. You just have to be witness to it. You're like a photographer with a camera capturing the moment, but you have no control over what the moment is. 
Exactly. You just look back at it and you think, oh yeah, I did that. Or, oh yeah, I worked on that. Or I know those guys. Or yeah, I bumped, you know. And, and it didn't at the time feel like it was a significant thing. But then you look 20 years later and you look back in history and you go, wow, we were part of creating something that is incredible. Um, and I'm just so grateful to be a part of that. And I'm lucky that I'll probably get another 20 years out of it before mm -hmm. I'm too old to do it. Also, I'm going to just go for it. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the mission right now. So the need that you have right now in your studio, does that record analog or digital now? Because everything's going to digital, like you said. So my question right. after that would be, for you, when you're alone, do you find it easier to record analog still or, or is digital the way to go now? Well, that's a good question. See, I, I've always heard somebody who believes that we have like a left and a right side of our brain, right? Right. Like on the left side, we're, we're problem solving, uh, you know, arithmetic, science, pragmatic thinkers. And on the right, we're emotive, feeling, warm, uh, you know, uh, animals. Right. And the Neve, I have an 8232 from 1988. So it's purely analog. But the Neve um, provides such a warmth to sound that created the sound of the era. And I respect that, but it is by no means an easy automated beast to work. Um, and what I mean by that is that I can record and mix anything on that console, but God forbid a week later, the artist comes back and says, can we get a remix done of this or, you know, <laughs> and I can't recall that. I have to go back to photographs I took of the console as it was set up at the time okay. and then put channel by channel, put it all back manually together just to reset myself back to where I was. And you realize that back in the day of the analog recording console, the guys who mixed and produced on those consoles, they were part of the band. Yeah. They did something that was at the time, in the moment, the same way that the bass player played the notes they played or the drummer played that fill, it can't be recreated. It's always going to be slightly different each time. But that's the beauty of it. That's our human organic flaw, that we're not machines that can do exact perfect replica day after day. But what I decided to do with the, with the Neve was to use it to front end all the recording coming in whether, you know, whatever it is, whether it's strings, jazz band, rock band, whatever, um, Latin, whatever it is, bring it all in through the Neve, let the Neve apply its magic warmth to the sound so that it becomes this, this beautiful thing that you just feel that's right. just there. But to fly that straight into Pro Tools so that I can mix it in the box on the, on the computer. But when I'm finished, I'll do the final mix back through the Neve to warm it up and use that as a master bus. So in the end, the, the final, it, it's originally touched by analog beauty and warmth. Right. It's mixed and, and manipulated in the world of digital, but then the final output goes back out through analog again. And I think that I can get as close to the original tape experience that we used to have without having to worry about all the technology, you know, of 1988 low in capacitors and, doing what it does so um yeah it's a, technically i think we've got a nice sort of blend of old and new and it's yeah. it's going to be really respectful so what you're doing is you're using the best of both worlds you know you got the analog which is great you get that warmth digital side to make it much more easier to flow right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it is and and it's not without its um i mean there's still 
analog compressors that I use, uh, you know, I use vintage compressors for that. Uh, I have other forms of preamps and of course the microphones. So I've got 55 yeah. microphones to, to manage and, you know, they're not all like the U47, but I have plenty of other mics that would rival those in terms of capability and quality. And uh, it just means that, so the reason of having to do it this way is that when you're building what we would call a destination studio, as is the case with mine, and artists are going to fly into Mexico, <laughs> you're immediately going, well, they have to get over the same, you know, media lies of, of danger. Most musicians don't listen to that stuff. They just go where they have to go. So they're good. But it's not easy to bring your drum kit into Mexico. I mean, the cost of the shipping, cost of everything uh, is very, very expensive and difficult. And Mexican customs are brutal. So my goal is to have everything down there and to be as good as any Hollywood studio that I grew up in, right. uh, in country, but to be able to give them an opportunity to be away from the hustle and bustle and the freeway traffic and the, and you know, the, the go, go, go nature of music production cities like LA, New York, Nashville, London, but to give them a place of solace where they can go there and create their best work in peace where things are not as expensive, where they can go into San Miguel is such a beautiful town. It's a, it's a gorgeous town and there's 330 artisanal restaurants there. There's mezcal bars, there's everything you would ever want just to go there for vacation. Mm. But I want the artists to be able to come down and do their best work in the studio, but have an experience that is part studio, part Mexico, part San Miguel, part history. Uh, and then walk away feeling like they did the best work they ever could do because that's hard to do these days, right. particularly in a world where studios are now somebody's laptop and a little portable keyboard and a set of headphones. Um, that doesn't make great music in my in my opinion. I mean, well, yeah. people will yeah. disagree with me on that, <laughs> but in my opinion, it doesn't. Well, I mean, you all have haters left and right. But yeah, because I think that the more the, the better the, the, the studio is, the more the more you can get out of the artist, you know? And I feel yeah. that that's a need that everybody, because you're right, like, like, like laptop, studio, laptop studios is not the way to do it now, you know? I mean, you want, because everybody thinks about the faster, you know, get out of the, get it out fast, I want it out fast, I want it now. And yeah, that, and that's not the, the, the and, and you see, like many, many artists go down because of your sound, you know? Um, it's a, it's, it's well, a weird I mean, thing because over time, yeah. like technology defines music right, right, in different right. ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Beatles were a product of the multi-track recording system. Um, without that, they would have been a very different band as yeah. they were in their earlier years when we didn't have multi-track. Uh, you can hear it. They were not able to experiment and to do the things that they did on the latter part of their career. Right. Um, today, music with laptops and just running logic or pro tools or, or something on a laptop. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great if you want to cut and paste and have 128 tracks and do experimental things with plugins and, and it, it's great. And it skews well to music that suits that like hip hop or rap or pop or those styles. But there's an organic uh, counterpoint to that. And that is the, the studios where musicians look at each other in the eye and, and stand in the room together and, you know, you, 
the guitarist and the music and the drummer and the bass player and the vocalist are in the room together looking at each other going let's create something right you can't you can't do that in a laptop no. and you know look there's, there's always going to be a market for billy eilish right there's always going to be or taylor swift yeah but I want the musicians like to be like jazz guys where there's that sixth sense that in the room, they know what the other guy's thinking and where they get in and the, the space between the notes and all the things that we as organic human beings, as me as a classically trained musician understand and know uh, that isn't necessarily a product of, of today's, you know, laptop studios. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to downplay somebody whose no, no. goal and ambition is to is to create great music as a singer songwriter or whatever, and they can do it on on a laptop and they can afford to do it because the studio was a barrier of entry to them. Right. But at the same time, I want quality too, and sometimes the barrier to entry, uh, financial barrier to entry, means that when you go in there, you're committed. You know, it's that old saying that you, you pay as much respect for something as it costs you to have it. And if it costs you very, very little to record something, it's, it's very easy for artists to do really crappy music. Yeah. And if you want to find that, just go on SoundCloud and start hunting around and you'll hear it. But I'm not saying that everything coming out of the studio isn't crap either, but I'm just saying that if you've got to spend some money to go in there and do it right with professionals and mixing engineers and mastering and all of that, then make sure your art is the best you can make it. Right. And that's what, what we our job is to be the, the concierge service to making that happen. I agree. Cause I mean, I mean, the guys, the guy, the, the men and women, the artists with laptops now, you gotta start, start somewhere, you know, you gotta learn somewhere. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I can see their side because they're okay. So I can see your side and your side. Your side is you want you want better stuff coming in. You want the, the you, you you if if you want the best of the best studio with studio equipment is key, right? But then yeah. I hear time and time again, and uh, without fault they, that they, that the new uh, musicians coming up uh, has to pay an incredibly amount of money for studio studio time. So I think that's why they're leaning towards the laptops. I'm not saying that that's wrong or right, you know, but like I said before, you got to start somewhere, you know, gather up all that money and then come to a, you know, a, a, a professional recording studio like yours. Well, yeah, there, there is that. I mean, yeah. there's also the argument that maybe, you know, back in the day where we used to have like four track cassette recorders right. to yeah. do the band, <laughs> yeah. but that didn't mean that your music was bad, No, but you, you know, but at the same time, um, you weren't ever going to consider that what you were going to release to the general public was recorded on that. You would take it to somebody who would look at it and give you an objective position about whether it was worthy of spending, you know, $150 for 15 minutes of two inch tape yeah, and, right. you know, a thousand dollars a day in a studio. Um, and they were cheap studios back then. Yeah. But it, it, it's not, they're not as, as expensive as people think these days. I okay. mean, studios are available. They're out there. There are some fantastic engineers uh, who were, you know, guided by the people who helped teach me, who are great at what they do. And, uh, you know, if you're living in a town 
where you're lucky enough to have access to incredibly great studios, seek them out and oh, two yeah. of them go check them out. Um, they're not as it was surprisingly not as expensive as you expect them to be. And yet you can get access to some of the best of the best with people who, you know, used to be Michael Jackson's engineer or, you know, <laughs> yeah. and who wouldn't want that? Cause that only benefits you to be able to be, you know, I always believe that you rise to the level of your peers. So if you find yourself as an underdog in a world of really high performers in whatever industry you're at, uh, after about three months, you'll raise up to their level organically. Yeah, yeah. And if you're never exposed to them because you're intimidated by them and you just want to be away from that because it just intimidates you, then it's hard to rise to that level. Some people can do it. They're always you know, going to be some crazy, incredibly talented, born with it, artists out there but for most people they need to be surrounded by people who they can rise up to their level because it only makes them better and and yeah. i really hope that musicians understand that or you know look i, I will say this to any musician listening to your show that we and I, I put myself in the same class we have a responsibility here we define culture we define society we define history because if you look back to what people in their retired years, if you, you know, I, I live in a world down in San Miguel with a lot of expats and they're often in their seventies now because they retired in Mexico and we sit around having a mezcal or a beer or something. And we'll talk about what they call the good old days. Every single time music comes up yeah. every single time they'll tell you about when they went to that REO Speedwagon band, uh, concert or they went to, they, they saw queen here or they, they went and saw the stones at, you know, Madison square garden or something. These are moments that in their memory are so strong and so important and pivotal to who they were and, and what they remember, remember that year to be based on the music that was there at the time. It's like to them, it's a photographic memory. It's a footprint of something. And I always, you know, I always find this one sort of difficult because it's, I, I lived in this world where I, I came to a crossroad in life where I could make a choice of whether or not I wanted to put myself and my family through uh, a starving artist career of being a, a working musician uh, or to take, I guess what I thought was probably an easier route and to go into the world of technology because I knew it paid well. And I chose the latter and I'm not saying I regret it, right? but I am saying that I, I know it came at a cost and the cost was to not have the adventures as a working musician that I was exposed to when I was in my twenties. And I feel that maybe I missed out. And now, you know, look, to any musician out there who's not taking a risk and not going out there and being their authentic self, uh, remember my story. Because at some point, you will live in a life of regret if you don't do the best thing you can do. And, and we will miss your music. We as listeners yeah. and, and engineers and people in the press and, and just fans, we need the next XYZ album. We need the next, you know, artist like this or a new thing or a whole new musical style. Without that, we're all just suffering. We need the musicians to want to take a risk. And 
we as an audience have to step up and do our part and that's go to their shows and buy their merch and and buy their material and 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 support them directly so they can feel that there's an audience out there wants to hear what they're doing Uh, because there is and guys like me want to make it the best that it can ever be that's 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 awesome of you to say that because I think I think many many artists needs needs more inspirational stories to be more motivated because it's so easy like to get out of your comfort zone you know you don't want to take that step you know here yeah. you are saying we want you to do this we you so we were giving them the next step what to do you know we want you to get out there and make more music to you know get new music because I because I think now that the music industry is um is okay right now i mean there's there's good music there's many many bad music right now um so do you think that the me do you think the music industry is like going in a in a better way or going in a worse way now that you've um heard every or like did your uh you know help music i'm encouraged wise? i'm encouraged by a lot of things that i'm hearing but it isn't coming out of the United States. Okay. Um, okay. I'm a huge, I, I stumbled into uh, bands out of Scotland recently, and I am blown away by what I've seen out coming out of that area, particularly things like uh, musicianship, songwriting, song structure, and vocal prowess. Maybe it's just because they're in the north and it's just the climate, but it right. tends to, you tend to find incredibly great singers coming out of Ireland, Wales, Scotland. Um, and a lot of those bands are not getting the attention they should be getting. Um, if you're not aware of them, check out bands like uh, Biffy Clyro. They're fantastic. Uh, a band I think was so underrated and yet some of the best songwriting I've heard in decades is a band called Father Son out of scotland uh these are i think when i listen to these guys i'm like i like where this is going this is a future i can get behind this is what we need to bring back um and those are the sort of bands that that i have great positive hope that will come out and i would love to record them i really would uh but they are some of the best of the best nice nice well, uh, we have one more question, and I think it's going to be our the most hard question. I've I, I, I understood that the hardest question I've ever asked you um, today. But uh, if you were to listen to a record, an artist, or an album uh, that you can listen to, but you can't tell me or your wife or anybody else how, how, how it makes you feel inside your soul, what would that be? So this is a, an, an album... I'm completely in love with, but you know. But you can't tell me how it makes you feel deep inside your soul. It's so ingrained in your soul. Oh, You're like, oh my god. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. There's two. Can I give you two? Sure. Two albums. Give, give me everything right. again. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The first one would be uh, Lou Reed's New York album. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It it gives me that sense of dark abode of alleyways and steam coming out of manhole covers in the 3am in the morning and about to get knifed around because somebody's hiding behind the dumpster over there Lou Reed made that come alive in that album and I I don't I don't think I've ever heard anybody do something like that Um, it was incredible the other album 
which actually has a very similar common theme, uh, but it's completely unexpected, is an album, I think it's from the early 90s, uh, out of Canada uh, by a band that unfortunately the lead singer passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, they're called Tragically Hip. Mm. Uh, and the album's called Road Apples. And it is a phenomenal piece of blues rock work that um, is both poetically beautiful. It, it, the, the lyrics read like prose. And the beat and the rhythm and the groove is just so beautiful and organic. And you feel like this should not have come out of Toronto or come out of <laughs> Hamilton or, or uh, where they were from. It, it should have come out of Arkansas or somewhere, maybe right? Muscle yeah. Shoals or somewhere like that. It's like that level of blues, but done in a Canadian perspective. Yeah. It is a beautiful album. Again, you know, those that know the band know it's probably one of their best ever albums. But for me, uh, I, I found it, I was in a record store in Bellevue, Washington uh, in Seattle in the in the 90s and i was just bumbling around the record store looking for interesting things and the dude who ran the store just happened to play this music over the pa yeah at the time and i stopped dead in my track and i listened to it. i went over to him i'm like What's that? who is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and then he showed it to me i said i want that album yeah. <laughs> best decision i ever made man right, those yeah. guys are epic hell yeah well they were were epic you know this again it's another part of our history but you know, don't don't miss those opportunities when you find them, huh? Absolutely not. No. Oh, and more vocal. Aren't you so glad that vinyl is finally returning to the, the shelves? You know. Yeah. Physical yeah, media. it is kind of cool. Physical media. I mean, I, yeah. It, it's weird because I remember vinyl was like, oh, I hated vinyl because you'd scratch the album <laughs> yeah. and you, you know, you, mm. the needle or the stylus on your turntable was always wearing out, and you had to spend a bunch yeah, of money and, but. There were times, you know, back then, the old days of the audio files that had the quadraphonic systems and, and all that. And I kind of missed that because it was fun. Um, I missed the album art. I missed the liner so, notes that came so, with that. So that is what I really missed because I used to collect CDs, like, you don't know what, like, everybody's missing. You know, I had CDs up there, up, like, from floor to ceiling, nothing but CDs, you know. And then I mm -hmm. got rid of them like a stupid, stupid man, you know. But then, but I, but I miss the jacket, the art, like just like you say, because you can't get those on. I mean, I, 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 I mean, you can look at it on on here, but what did that do? Nothing, you know. And I right. just like the feeling, the texture of the album. Yeah, it's great. I'm so glad. Yeah, just you know. like walking into an old record store used yeah. to be something you did on the weekend, right? Yeah, and yeah. some, I, I know in Adelaide, in my hometown in Australia, there used to be a record store there called. Uh, it was a chain called Big Star, and uh, Big Star used to do vinyl, right. and they do collectible vintage stuff, and I would go in there, the guy who owned it happened to be a lead singer in a band that I really liked in, in uh, Australia, that were one, a band that you know me and my mates used to go see at the pubs on the weekend, but um, I became friends with him, and, and he introduced me to music from artists I'd never heard before that were you know, weird that came out of, uh, I don't know, the Caribbean or came out of South Africa or came out of London or something that never got a record deal, but somehow they cobbled together enough money to make 500 vinyl pressings of, of an EP. Mm. 
and he had those things in his store and you'd go in there and you'd hunt them down man and you'd find oh, yeah. some of the greatest stuff that and then you ended up you'd look up these guys and you'd go wow that guy was really really cool whatever happened to him oh he died or you know he, <laughs> right. it's like oh no story, you're right? kidding yeah. me yeah. you know Damn, but man. i feel blessed that you know i got touched by some of that great music on that great vinyl so yeah nice. it brings back good memories to me uh i hope that you know we can see that moving forward for the rest you're right about liner notes i mean i it does, yeah, i always yeah. you go into a record store you pick up like a pink floyd album you look at the album it would be like wow this is cool i'd be looking at animals and just every angle and opening it up and it was like no i miss those days yeah because uh my mom and dad gave me a bunch of vinyl um way back when and i'm and i'm kind of upset with my mom because she had every out elvis vinyl record she's like no you're not having those until i until i pass i'm like why dude you know elvis, I'm so great. <laughs> elvis and the beatles are my are my main two go-to albums you know of all time um and yeah. I, and i know you're a you're a big Beatles fan just like i am uh, so, what would be your 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 the the number one Beatles song ever written? Do you think? There's, uh, so, there's so many good ones, you know. I mean, so it's kind of hard. You to know, play. I as as much as it sounds a bit trite, I yeah. liked Paperback Rider okay. for okay. some reason yeah. because I liked the guitar, and I was a guitarist yeah. at the time, and it sort of touched me. It, as it's guitar, I, I just felt that was incredible, and I, my respect for George Harrison is amazing. But yeah. I'd, I'd say probably come together. Come together is great because yeah. it it just it just showed a willingness of a band to want to explore in areas that people just didn't expect them to go. And as artists, that's what we need to be doing. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I mean. I can't argue with that. I mean, coming together is great. You know, it's been covered by Michael Jackson and Sadan Garnon, and it's been, yeah, so it's it's great day up there, too. So, uh, so before we go, I, w I want you, um, where could people find you if they want to contact you for, for a... Well, for a, I, I'm uh, a work in progress right now thing. because all of my time has been building this yeah. big-ass studio. Right. So I haven't got a digital footprint yet because there's nothing to show on it until the studio is built. But um, I can be found on Twitter uh, at MilesW. That's M-Y-L-E-S-W is my Twitter handle. People can reach out to me there. Um, and uh, I guess that's probably it for the moment. I'll yeah. update you later as okay. we actually have something to show as the studio comes together but we don't expect that to be finished until at least the end of this year if not early next year so well, i mean it's a lot of work right yeah. well i well it takes time to build to build anything you know and it I does think, and i think that, that your studio would be top notch when it when it's good done so yeah. a musical utopia my friend yes. that's what it will be exactly exactly <laughs> so we do honestly thank you for so thank you so much for coming on and and uh hopefully you'll be back sooner than later and yeah, anytime. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And for everybody listening, always remember when words fail, music speaks. Bye, guys. Probably come together. Come together is great. Because yeah. it, it, just, it just showed a willingness of a band to want to explore in areas that people just didn't expect them to go. And as artists, that's what we need to be doing. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, I can't argue with that. I mean, coming together is great. You know, it's been covered by Michael Jackson and Sadan Garnon, and it's been, yeah, so it's, 
it's great day up there too. So, uh, so before we go, I, w- I want you, um, where could people find you if they want to contact you for, for, a, well, for a, I, a, I'm a work in progress right now thing. because all of my time is being building this yeah. big ass studio. Right. So I haven't got a digital footprint yet because there's nothing to show on it until the studio is built. But, um, I can be found on Twitter uh, at Miles W. That's M-Y-L-E-S-W is my Twitter handle. People can reach out to me there. Um, and uh, I guess that's probably it for the moment. I'll yeah. update you later as we actually have something to show as the studio comes together. But we don't expect that to be finished until at least the end of this year, if not early next year. So well, I mean, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Right. Well, I, well, it takes time to build, to build anything, you know. And it I does, think, and I think that the studio would be top notch when it when it's get done. So, yeah. A musical utopia, my friend. Yes. That's what it will be. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we do honestly thank you for so thank you so much for coming on, and and uh, hopefully you'll be back sooner than later. And yeah, anytime. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And for everybody listening, always remember when words fail, music speaks. Bye, guys. <laughs>